I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring email. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with our friend Vladimir, the CEO of Better and Better, a natural, vegan, and eco-friendly oral care brand, which is also his third self-started company. Listen in to learn more about how he found himself frustrated by the inconvenience of taking large numbers of pills to keep his body regulated, and how that inspired the idea for creating revolutionary products and ultimately launching better and better. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Where are you based out of? Yeah, we're based out of New York, so I'm right here uh, near, near New York City. Are you, uh, are you from New York? Well, I was um, originally born in Serbia, uh, hence the Vladimir, but uh, I moved here when I was six years old, so here being New York. So I grew up in the city uh, and have been in and around New York for most of my life. So like when people ask me at this point, are you from New York? Generally, I say yes. Yeah, I, I think anywhere, living anywhere from six on yeah past account what what brought your parents to new york yeah that's a great question so um it's it's kind of a a long and interesting story but it was really uh because of 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 me so i was diagnosed um with cancer when i was six years old and um at that point my parents and i were living in, in serbia which was then yugoslavia and the medical uh, uh facilities there weren't quite good uh, or, or not good enough. And so my parents luckily had a friend who worked here at uh, uh, Sloan Kettering, the, the famous cancer hospital in New York. And they made kind of a last minute decision, like, let's, let's go. And so um, I was treated here as a kid for about five, six, almost actually 10, 10 years or so um, with various chemotherapies and, um, uh, surgeries, radiation, all of that. So my childhood was pretty, um, uh, kind of, uh, different than most, thankfully. Um, but you know, it, it brought us here to the United States. And so my dad is an engineer. And so he was able to get a job while I was, I was in treatment. And through that job, we were able to, to stay here after, um, after I was, um, you know, after I, I was cured. Uh, of of the cancer itself what a crazy uh <laughs> childhood journey yes i mean to move that far alone and also to new york yeah it seems like it would be so drastically different lifestyle wise yeah i mean new york uh was as you know as like going to the moon for a six-year-old um we were um you know first it was just me and my mom for, for a few months, then my dad came and then my sister came. So kind of the family slowly grew here, but early on, it was just me and my mom here for, for, for a while. And, you know, just walking down the streets of New York city, it felt like walking in a, in a canyon of, of, of concrete. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of wild. Luckily she spoke a little bit of English. And then I, you know, as a kid, I learned to speak English pretty quickly. And I think, um, you know, very quickly within a year or two, I felt like a, like a New Yorker. And I think New York City tends to do that to people. Yeah, especially that young. Uh, yeah. Career-wise, like what, what was your background before launching the brand? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I stayed in New York after, you know, uh, being a kid and, and, and I went to NYU. Um, so I, I studied economics and philosophy. Um, I, I could I could never settle on one one topic, so I tried to combine as many different ideas and as many different concepts as I could. Um, so I, I did that. Also, while going to NYU, I worked as a real estate agent full time too. So I, I was like, I got to get some sales experience, um, uh, and and I had to pay for college. My parents couldn't you know couldn't pay for it, so. 
I was like, I don't want to take out loans. I, I, I want to, I want to be free. And so I was like, okay, I'll work as a real estate broker full time while going to NYU studying economics. So I did that. Um, and then coming out of school, I, I did management consulting for a few years. Um, just kind of, I felt like I had more to learn, particularly from the real world. And so I, I ended up doing strategy and innovation consulting for big companies like Citibank, Pfizer, um, you know, Humana, insurance companies, stuff like that, mainly doing uh, smartphone um, innovation. So we would go to Asia and we would go to different countries, India, Singapore, Japan, uh, and bring over kind of innovations and new technologies. So, you know, I helped to launch the Citibank mobile application, uh, a few other kind of mobile friendly, mobile oriented technologies we helped to build and to launch. So it was a great, it was a great experience coming out of school. And then when I turned 25, I was like, I can't do corporate life for too much longer. So I, I started my first company. Um, and that, that company was a company called Rocket Hub. Uh, it was one of the first crowdfunding platforms. So we were an online marketplace connecting entrepreneurs, scientists, artists with um, uh, money uh, from, from funders, you know, crowdsourced. So we were one of the first crowdfunding platforms, kind of similar to Kickstarter and Indiegogo. We quickly, quickly expanded as well to different, different ideas, different concepts, but uh, I was the CTO there. So I helped to build the actual tech platform. I taught myself how to code in the meantime. And so I wasn't a very good programmer. So I ended up, did you, yeah. Did you teach yourself to code before launching that? or while building it both i learned a little bit during my consulting days because we were doing some tech projects and then um while you know that was like 2009 2010 new york tech scene was still very young and kind of nascent um in in terms of talent and so it was very difficult to find uh, you know, web developers, web programmers who could who could do what we wanted to do, particularly when it comes to like moving money around, which was still before the days of Stripe and before the days of of kind of these plug and play uh, solutions that we have now. So we had to build it all from scratch. And so I started kind of doing that and then realized I was way in over my head. So we, <laughs> we brought on some additional developers uh, to kind of blow out the platform and blow kind of create what we really what we really needed. And ultimately, like, what was the trajectory of yeah. that business? Like, that such an interesting time, like, knowing how much growth was going on within the entire space. Yeah, crowdfunding at that point, like, late 2009, early 2010, that was a word that people still didn't really know. People knew kind of about crowdsourcing and all that, uh, but they didn't know about crowdfunding. And um, so we were kind of building while the tides were, were, were rising. And at one point, like 2011, 2012, there was a crowdfunding platform launching every single day. <laughs> um, and it was crazy because it was, you know, I think it was relatively at that point, easy to build, but very hard to grow um, in terms of a community, a marketplace, supply and demand. Um, and we were, we, were, we were getting pretty good at that. So at one point we were probably the second or third largest crowdfunding platform after Kickstarter and after Indiegogo. And so we ended up uh, getting acquired in 2014, um, early 2015, um, by kind of a conglomerate company in Europe. Um, they just wanted to take some of the technology we had developed and kind of apply it to their other platforms. Um, and that's what they did. So we, we, we went from napkin idea through to acquisition in about four years or so with Rocket Hub. And it wasn't like a huge exit, but it was enough to kind of give me confidence and some resources to start my second company afterwards. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what a great experience for the first yeah. go yeah. at yeah. entrepreneurship. It was kind of wild because during that time, also the crowdfunding kind of jobs act passed in Congress. So we, we were one of the witnesses, like we went and testified in Congress to get the Jobs Act passed so that people could crowdfund, not just like for gifts or for rewards or for charity, but that actually could give away equity um, as part of crowdfunding. And because of some of the work that we did, all these equity crowdfunding platforms were, were, were created shortly afterwards as well. How do you feel like you went about selecting the opportunities 
because uh, you mentioned, you know, like you had at that point resources uh, and confidence to go out and build like your second business. I'm curious, uh, was choosing crowdfunding like a very intentional, um, yeah, process? Yeah, I mean, so I mentioned with my, during my consulting days, I got to go to Asia a lot, uh, in, India, um, um, uh, Singapore, Japan. And the idea of crowdsourcing really already started to, 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 to grow in those countries, um, particularly like with uh, philanthropic stuff like Kiva and other, other platforms. So I started to see these trends kind of late, uh, 2008, early 2009, uh, through my consulting days. And it was like, oh, nothing like this really exists yet in the United States. So we were building out the platform at the same time as Kickstarter was building out at the same time that Indiegogo uh, was, was growing and building out their platform. And it was really like the moment was right for this concept. And I think also... You know, that was right after the economic collapse of like 2008, 2009. And I think a lot of new ideas and concepts came out of that collapse when people saw like how uh, fragile the banking, uh, you know, system was, how, how, how big industry could quickly collapse. So I think you saw a lot of interesting new ideas around peer-to-peer support. Um, kind of that was the Web, web 2.0 era so like a lot of these companies like Uber, Airbnb, um, all the crowdfunding platforms were created during that time where I think there was this general idea that, you know, you don't need these big middlemen. You can go directly to your peer or to someone like a service provider, a driver or a, a, someone who has a house and they want, they want you to have access to their, you know, to their bedroom. So like this idea, this concept of, kind of flattened marketplaces, I think really grew out from that economic collapse and the technology was there to finally support these kind of fluid peer-to-peer uh, -peer based solutions. And uh, knowing what you're doing now, it seems so different from, from your background. Uh, what, what did you end up getting into after, after the acquisition? Yeah, so I think, yeah, it is different. Um, we'll talk about better and better, you know, shortly, but I think it's also related because at Rocket Hub, we were a hub for other entrepreneurs. So I got to see a lot of businesses um, go from, you know, very early prototype stage through to kind of early seed stage. Like that's when we were helping them the most. Um, and so uh, a lot of those businesses were consumer businesses. They were CPG businesses. They were all kinds of uh, ideas and, and business. So I got to like absorb a lot. Uh, and so after Rocket Hub, I, I started um, my second company, which was a company called Mural. Uh, Mural was an actual consumer product. So we were building a large digital art frame uh, that would connect the museums and galleries and artists of the world with people in their homes through an actual beautiful display that was designed for art and photography, not for you know movies or, or TV, but for showing classical works of art or new works of art, new gifts, new images, et cetera, photography as well. So we were building the full stack platform. I was the CEO and the co-founder there. So I was kind of in charge of everything. And uh, the idea was to build like the iPod of art where you can get any piece of art and display it in your home, in a hotel, in a restaurant, wherever you want to have art, we were we were making that possible. That's a fascinating concept as well. Like yes. bringing tech uh, in and physical products. I guess your point about it being not too far different is that this was like a tech play into consumer. That's right. It was a kind of transitioning from a marketplace pure tech into consumer marketplace because on 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 mural we were actually going to artists and telling them, hey, you can use our platform to sell your artwork or to get new revenue um, in, in, in a way that you couldn't get before. So um, I, I think that Mural was like the perfect transition into, into a consumer. And then also 
um, that's when I started working with my co-founder Jerry. He he was before that he was at Fresh Direct, so he was a he was a product manager at Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct is one of the biggest kind of online grocers here in the tri-state New York area. And they uh, not only do they sell other people's growth, like uh, you know uh, Chobani or or whatever, they also sell and create their own products. So he was a product manager there. He would he would create products there. And so I brought him in to be kind of our COO at Mural because I knew that like it's going to be a lot more supply chain heavy, a lot more you know manufacturing oriented because we were actually building a physical product. So he taught himself how to do electronics and how to do, you know, how to build a supply chain from, from scratch. And so um, Jerry and I are also one of the, you know, two out of the three co-founders at, at Better and Better now. So it was my first experience starting to work with him as well. And he had consumer background. So yeah, I mean, that, uh, Mural was a crazy experience too, because, you know, it was an electronics product that we were building in 2014-15, where like the United States, it was very hard to build electronics here. So we had to set up a, a production facility in China. Uh, we did that. We had to, you know, grow the consumer brand here in the U.S. And, and globally, we did that. So we went from, again, from a napkin idea to, at this point, probably hundreds of thousands of units sold uh, of the mural, uh, mural art frame. Is that company still yeah. in business? Yeah, yeah. So mural, we grew from, uh, like I said, from the beginning and it was, you know, for Rocket Hub, we didn't raise that much money. We only raised, you know, a little bit from angel investors, a few less than a few hundred K. For for Mural, it was the opposite kind of. We had to raise a lot of money because it takes a lot of cash to build electronics, particularly, you know, something that costs four hundred, five hundred dollars. So uh, we raised about ten million dollars in venture funding from various VCs and angel investors, and also uh, for our Series A, one of our investors was a company called Netgear. They make routers and other consumer hardware. They're a big publicly traded company, and they were looking to move more into consumer hardware. So at first, they were an investor in our Series A. Um, then they joined our board of directors, so they were they were kind of inside of the company. They were able to see as we were growing. And then when we were going to go for Series B to really kind of blow out and and, and grow even further, um, Netgear said, you know, we'd rather uh, acquire you now. And so we negotiated with them. And they ended up acquiring our company um, in, in 2018. So after a, about uh, four years or so, we, we, had, a, a, we had an acquisition um, wow. under, our, under our belt again. Do you feel like there were similarities in the way that you approached building, even though the um, product was so different? Yeah, I think... Um, I, so everything I do kind of teaches me lessons for the thing that comes next. And so for, for Rocket Hub, we worked with entrepreneurs, but we also worked with artists. Um, and what I saw at Rocket Hub is that visual art was still not kind of, hasn't caught, hadn't caught up to the digital world. Music, film, television, uh, even some forms of like a theater um, had kind of been digitized in a way, whereas visual art was still left behind. So that was kind of my spark for building out Mural. Uh, Mural was, was you know, the idea was to like, let's bring visual art, this traditional world of galleries and museums into the present. And so that's what we were shooting for. So it was like, it, it was these, these big trends tend to kind of pop up in my head and I tend to see them um, and connecting the dots is really what I do best. And so being able to connect the dots and see, oh, this is where the world is going. And that was before NFTs. That was before all the stuff yeah. that's happened, the crazy stuff that's happened in digital art over the last two, three years. Uh, that was like 2013, 14, when, when none of that was still visible. There were only maybe one or two digital art companies at that point. So um, we really saw- I, I would assume you have to be fascinated with everything that's uh, unfolded over the yeah. past couple I mean, of years. It's it's really wild, and and Mural is still a growing brand within Netgear now. And they're like the number one use case for Mural now is showing off your NFTs. Uh, so it's not just you know going you know going showing off a, a Van Gogh or a Monet, but it's like literally showing off what you paid for you know in you know in Ethereum to get uh, to get and display on your wall. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
And and what was the initial idea behind Better and Better? And, okay, and so the spark, yeah, the spark for that. Yeah, so I, um, so um, when when Mural was acquired, I was at Netgear for a little while, uh, for about a year, helping it to integrate and make sure that that the baby could live <laughs> within within this new you know family. Uh, and so <laughs> so so we did that. You know, they set up their own supply chain, marketing, sales, distribution, all that. We helped them. To, to create. And then after a year, I was like, I can't do corporate life for, for too long as, as, as is the trend now. And um, um, I need to do something else and something new. And so the idea for better and better is probably the most personal of all the things I've worked on, because I mentioned to you before, you know, because of my cancer treatment and medical treatment, um, I, you know, thankfully I'm cancer free, but there are these like long-term effects. And one of them is, is a vitamin uh, deficiency that, you know, I've, I've had for, for 20 plus years. So I had to take like a fistful of pills, you know, every day just to kind of stay, stay at, you know, at, at, le at normal levels. And so I really hate that. I hate pills and I hate also having to think about it. So even during my mural days, I've been thinking about like, there's gotta be a better way to get your, you know, vitamins and, and, and nutrients and minerals without having to take a pill or a gummy on, on a daily basis. And so that idea started to grow within my mind. And um, I started thinking about, well, well, what if I leveraged an existing habit? What if there's something I already do um, that could be kind of piggybacked on top of uh, to, to, to create this vitamin supplementation? And so uh, I realized that the mouth and the oral you know, uh, membranes are very absorbent. So I started looking into sublingual absorption, transbuccal absorption, so absorption through the gums and the and the, and, the, and the kind of cheeks and realized that toothpaste actually could be an incredible delivery mechanism for vitamins and nutrients because most people brush their teeth and they do it at least, you know, once or twice or three times, sometimes per day. And it's also a very active period, right? You're brushing your, your, there's a lot of stuff happening in your mouth during that time. So it makes the mouth even more absorbent. So that's how the idea came about is like through my own personal vitamin deficiency and laziness, um, combined with like, oh, this idea of like leveraging an existing habit, leveraging something that is already, you know, most people that already most people do. And so uh, I started even tinkering with like my own formula in my own kitchen uh, for a while. And then when Mural was acquired, I was like, okay, there's something here. Let's try to build a company out of this, uh, this big idea of like leveraging powerful existing habits to make our lives better to make ourselves healthier and potentially to make the world a better place as well. And so our first product is a two-in-one toothpaste that has vitamins and nutrients in it that you, you can absorb just by brushing your teeth. So no swallowing, nothing. You just brush your teeth two to three minutes a day, uh, twice, twice a day, and you can get a nice microdose of vitamin D and vitamin B12 through it. And then as we continue to grow, we're going to have multiple types of toothpaste. So toothpaste with vitamin C and zinc, other minerals, other vitamins. And then we are, we're going to expand into other products that can be used, you know, kind of that can leverage an existing habit to give you a microdose of vitamins and, and, and minerals. That's such a fascinating, uh, like, flip on consumer packaged goods brands. I think usually they focus on improving, like, the specific product that they are manufacturing, whereas you're, I mean, I'd imagine you're already focused on improving like the toothpaste aspect of it, but then also uh, like kind of eliminating the need for another habit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. So when we started developing our toothpaste, uh, we, we obviously analyzed everything that's in the market. Like, so let, we looked at everything, all the toothpaste that's in the market and we realized that um, toothpaste is kind of treated almost, uh, it's treated almost like a personal care product that actually doesn't go in your body but it does go in your body. It goes in your mouth. You know, it, like I mentioned, a lot of it is absorbed into your bloodstream through, through, through your mouth. And also some of it's actually swallowed too, because you can't control that. Um, so uh, we, we started going through like ingredient lists and realized like most toothpaste has stuff in it that you would never actually want to swallow. So like titanium dioxide, uh, sodium lauryl sulfate, um, different benzoates and parabens, um, you know, everyone's heard about triclosan at this point, but, but there's some other stuff as well that like you don't want in your mouth and you definitely don't want in your bloodstream and your body. 
So when we started creating better and better, our first kind of step was just to clean up, clean up toothpaste, like create a natural, almost um, like food, to create a food grade level toothpaste. And so that's, that's what we did. So for instance, like instead of artificial preservatives, we use radish root extract. So we use radishes. Radishes are really good at natural pre preservation of things. So we put that in. Instead of artificial sweeteners, we use agave. Um, and so we kind of went down the ingredient list and we're like, what can we remove uh, or what can we improve? And so that, that's what we did. So that was step one. And that's our base kind of toothpaste formula. That's what we call the purity formula. And we sell that formula as well. Just, it's, it's like just the base organic, um, which makes probably, I would argue it's the cleanest toothpaste on the market. It's just the cleanest, most, you know, natural based, or uh, most of our ingredients are organic based. So it's quite different than anything else you get in the market. So we use that base formula on top of which we add the vitamins and nutrients. Um, and that's where you get into what you're talking about, kind of replacing the need to take pills and replacing the need for that kind of additional daily habit when you can just leverage this existing daily habit. How did you think about, uh, like, I mean, not education, but it's like a new experience yeah. for people to brush their teeth and then also uh, know that they're getting the nutrients. Because I feel like a lot of, uh, I don't know, for me personally, like the placebo effect of taking pills and being like conscious mm -hmm. of it has to affect the outcome in some form. Yeah, that's our biggest challenge right now. It's, it's education. Um, as a brand, our biggest marketing and sales challenge is like teaching people that this A is a thing that is a real concept. So this is, you know, there, there are dozens of studies. And um, in addition to that, I mean, doctors have been using sublingual uh, pills or sublingual uh, medicines for, for decades at this point. You know, there are pain medications that are just delivered under your tongue. There are all kinds of other medications that are just given to people in their mouth, particularly for people who have trouble swallowing. So this isn't a new concept. It's, it's a very established concept that just hasn't really been productized or consumerized in the way that we're, we're, you know, we're, we're doing with, with, with our toothpaste. And so um, the number one thing is just teaching people about, hey, this is possible and we have done it. We have done it through this toothpaste. So I think It'll just take some time, you know. Our goal is to be kind of the de facto brand of this concept, uh, so it'll take a little bit more time and a little bit more investment to do that. But that's that's what we're really focused on is leveraging the scientists that we work with, the chemists, the formulators, um, and and making sure that they help us tell that story of like, hey, this is real, and this will make a, a real impact you know, on your body and how you feel. In particular, because it's cumulative, right? You know, you can take a pill and it gives you a spike of a particular vitamin pretty quickly. Um, but um, this is much more constant, right? You brush your teeth once, twice, three times a day. It's over and over and over again. And it's a much more steady, constant dosage that is uh, much easier to absorb by your system than these big jumps when you take a big kind of horse pill. Uh, and that's kind of the case for most, most vitamins at this point. Knowing the education challenge and the time that you think it's going to take, how did you think about building the business to allow for that time? Yeah. I mean, one thing is we, 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 we raised some money. Uh, I realized that, you know, this, you know, you could bootstrap a toothpaste company, but you can't bootstrap uh, a, a company that's trying to change how people take vitamins and, and, and supplements. So we, we, we raised about $4 million in total so far from various investors, uh, venture capital and, and individual investors as well. Uh, knowing that, A, we, we needed some R&D investment. So it took us about two years to actually create the toothpaste and prove and show that it, it's efficacious and that it, it still feels like toothpaste, right? It can't feel like chewing a vitamin. It has to feel like really good minty toothpaste, but also deliver the vitamins. So it took us about two years to do that. So it took, that took a meaningful amount of investment. And then in addition to that, we, we realized that it's going to take us, you know, investment to, to, to market this in a way that traditional toothpaste or traditional CPG might not require. So for instance, we're creating videos with scientists 
and you know uh, biochemists that we work with to tell that story. We're creating um, other assets uh, over the next you know few months, few years that will kind of tell that credibility and science story in addition to everything else, in addition to the brand building that you know you have for traditional CPG. So it's gonna you know we realize that this is a long game, but it's a long game that could change the supplement world. And that's a big, as you know, big, big, big world. So if we can, we can make a dent in supplements, um, the investment, both in terms of time and resources, will be well worth it. How do you, uh, how do you organize your time? Uh, it seems like you do like a lot of deep research. Um, I mean, especially in the beginning of a new venture, obviously, as you're like learning the space. I'm just curious how you, how you tend to manage your time um as you're building something so new yeah i think um you know i read somewhere in the past like the ceo really has three roles uh number one is kind of determining and setting the the vision and the direction of the company um and i think that's where all that research comes in i i absorb a lot of information constantly um trying to connect the dots uh and and like really be uh aware of where the market is now where the market has been and most importantly where the market is going because like you have to go where the puck is going you can't try to recreate what already exists um you know there are two thousand toothpastes on amazon uh doing what's been done is very very difficult particularly when the margins are tight and inflation is going up and all that so um, I would say a big, big portion of my time is spent on, on that vision and, and the direction of the company. Um, the second is having people to, to make that vision into a reality. And so I think, um, you know, recruiting and building the team, both the core team and then, um, you know, consultants, freelancers, scientists, uh, uh, lawyers, uh, accountants, everything that is supportive of our uh, company, um, you know, kind of starts with with me and then goes goes from there. So I think that that that's a key uh, uh, kind of time <laughs> suck uh, or for me sometimes. But it but it but it you know it's important um, because if you get the right people, then I can offload and and, and give to, to others and really be fully trusting of, of, of their capabilities. So I think recruiting and managing of people is probably the number two thing. And then the number three thing is making sure that those people have resources to do what they need to do. So, you know, whether it's money or, you know, uh, publicity or, you know, anything that you would consider a resource for a company like ours, I have to make sure that A, we have those resources and B, that we don't run out of those resources. So um, a lot of my time is spent fundraising a lot of my time is spent uh, seeking, you know, market or marketing opportunities, whether it's influencers or uh, celebrities or whatever. Uh, um, I think those resources are key. And so um, that is really uh, a big, big portion of my, my time uh, spent, particularly in like, uh, if it's a fundraising period, you know, fundraising takes on 80, 90% of my time. But if it's less of a period, I still kind of put it on the I still do it, but not as much. So those are really three things. I think it's the vision and the mission. I think it's the people and I think it's the resources. Knowing that you've built uh, businesses that have scaled and ultimately been acquired and built teams effectively, how, how do you view managing um, or, or does it go back to finding the right, the right people? Yeah, I would say I'm mainly a um, mainly a hands-off manager, like finding the right people, and letting them do their thing. Obviously, I I don't uh, I don't sleep very much, so I keep an eye on most. Of them. <laughs> I, yeah, and like I am kind of uh, the eye looking at everything, yeah. but in a way that I I try to be non obtrusive to the to the people who are doing their 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 work. Um, some of the best managers I've had in my life were like that, where where there's a great deal of trust, and then at different periods there is like, oh, have you thought about this? Have you, you know, have you, you know, considered that? 
Like there, you kind of you can recalibrate people without micromanaging them, and I think that's 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 really key. Um, and then a lot of management, I think, is like repetition. Like particularly when it comes to the big vision, like you have to repeat yourself over and over and over and over again, both in terms of internal team, but also external. You know, even what we're doing here today, it's like I've said a lot of these things before, but it's like it that's part of what is so necessary. Because people have to see that northern north star all the time; they can't lose sight of it. And so, if I can keep reiterating it, it, it it'll stay bright, and people can can run 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 to it. Looking back over your career, what do you feel like were some of your biggest lessons or takeaways from the first two ventures? Yeah. So I think my biggest lesson in terms in even even during my consulting days. Um, um, I was working with like the CTOs, CIOs of these big, big companies, like like very large, multi-billion dollar companies. And I realized like even as a 22-year-old, I had a lot of power uh, because knowing things that other people don't know and being able to foresee things that maybe other people don't expect is very, very powerful. And so this idea that y- you don't necessarily need traditional power in terms of money and resources to be powerful, I think was really insightful for me as a, as a 22 year old. And also as an immigrant, because as an immigrant, you see like, you know, rich people, powerful people, like it's very hard to figure out how they got that way. And, you know, some people inherit it and some people earn it, but um, yeah, it, it's all different. But to, to realize as a, as, as a relatively young man that like, you kind of can control your own destiny if you, if you are, are, you know, clever and, 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 and work hard. Um, I think that was really, really, really a key lesson. Um, for, for, for Rocket Hub, I think one of the key lessons was, was around business model and just like baseline economics. So for crowdfunding, um, um, I think, uh, you know, there's big money that flows, billions of dollars flow through crowdfunding, but the platforms don't make very much money off of that. They make, you know, one penny off of a dollar or, you know, two pennies, like 2%. Um, so just the idea of like, you are limited by your business model and the, the, the market is limited by these business models. So for instance, in crowdfunding, we realize quickly, like there's only going to be like three or four, four winners and then there's going to be everyone else. And so you, you see that in crowdfunding, like in every vertical or type of crowdfunding, there's only like two or three companies that are really winning because you need that huge scale. And so the power of business models was really, really important for me. And that kind of uh, built me, built, kind of guided me to the next level. And then finally for Mural, like Mural was really um, uh, a story of, a, of, of um, uh, kind of leveraging personal like interactions and connections uh, as, a, as a founder, because I, I quickly realized like, um, the power of, you know, being able to directly communicate with our stakeholders and and uh, potentially eventually our acquirer, which was Netgear, like building those relationships really early on and using those relationships to grow the company and then eventually sell the company and get acquired, I think was was really key. So like, I started to get into my own kind of mode of like being able to be confident in a way that I think wasn't wasn't possible before, and that confidence manifested through these personal deep relationships that eventually led two, three, four, five years down below, down the line to, uh, to really positive outcomes. Do you feel like that confidence came from the business model at that point, or was the confidence built over time through repetition of having, or being put in the situation where you had to communicate? Yeah. The, the, the mural business model was interesting because it was both hardware sales. So we would make, you know, nice margin. It was a $500 product still is. Um, and so we can make margin on the physical product and we had a subscription component. So there's a content element that is much higher margin, right? Because it's, uh, you know, zero um, or very little um, uh, uh, kind of uh, expense for those, for those items. So um, I think the business model was definitely empowering uh, because it, 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 it lends itself towards growth and, and a positive, positive story. Uh, but also I think some, part of it is too, is age too. Like just, you know, I was 20 years old, 21 years old when I was in consultant. I was 25 years old when I started 
um, Rocket Hub, and I was 30 years old basically when I started Mural. So like just being able to have a few years of like, uh oh, I've seen the world, I think is really uh, helpful as well. Definitely. Um, looking yeah. back, I mean, even I guess maybe even more so looking at better and better jumping into like the CPG world, obviously not in like a traditional manner and mm -hmm. much more differentiated. Is there any advice that you would go back and give yourself uh, at the beginning of this phase of your journey? That's a great question. Um, I think um, I think a lot of things that I thought were weaknesses were actually strengths. So, for instance, inexperience. Um, obviously, you know, in many ways that is a weakness, but also like not having too much experience lets you see the world in ways that, you know, very experienced people might not uh, see. And so, you know, crowdfunding was kind of a crazy concept in 2009, 2010 to think that, you know, billions of dollars of money would get, you know, moved directly as opposed to going through middlemen of banks and financial institutions and all that um, was pretty crazy in the late, you know, 2000 aughts. Um, but because I didn't know better, <laughs> I was like, okay, let's just build it. Uh, and so it was this like weakness of, you know, a more experienced person would view, but actually is a strength. So I think one, one bit of advice is like, think about the weaknesses you have and could, is there a judo move where you can leverage that weakness and turn it, or think of it at least as a strength or as a, um, uh, as a kind of a more empowering element to your, uh, to your, your being. Uh, I think the second part, like, you know, and, you know, I, I've learned this more and more is like just the power of co-founders and having a good team. Like that's kind of, it's somewhat trite, but it's also profoundly important too, because, um, you know, having co-founders, having a team, I think, increases the odds of a company's success dramatically. You know, there are lone founders, they could do it, and they have done it. Uh, and, you know, kudos to, to, to them. But I think I'm the type of person who goes through kind of cycles of emotion and feelings and, and stuff like that. So having an equal <laughs> co-founder or near equal or whatever, just having someone you view as like your counterpart, I think is so important because you know, even if you're feeling down, this other person most likely won't be feeling down at that moment. So they can kind of bring you up. And then when they're feeling down, you can bring them up. And so this idea of like uh, a team that, that builds momentum uh, is much kind of more realistic than I think a solo founder who might, you know, where those cycles could have a real impact, not just on them, but on their company as well. So I think having a team that is, that is supportive and and uh, empowering is, is, is key. And I, you know, that's a big, big point that I uh, realized during, during my experiences. How do you, uh, if you even do, but how do you manage, this will be one of my last questions. Mm -hmm. How do you manage yourself with the uncertainty? You've been through the entrepreneurial game a couple times now. This is your third go. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like that comes naturally? to you is it something that you you know you talked about like the emotional roller coaster of it um i think some people might think on your third venture that that would just be like table stakes like not even a thing anymore it's funny because i think like to use some poker terms like uh like the blinds are going up so um every, every yeah, uh, yeah yeah every startup <laughs> The stakes are higher uh, in some ways. Yes. Because yeah, of the yeah, expectations. Because of the expectations and because of yeah. my own personal demands for myself and, and, and my, my time. Um, yeah. It's funny because I, uh, I, uh, I don't know if I listened to this or um, somebody told me that they, they were like, yeah, when you're a no one or a nobody in a field, like um, it's actually very easy because nobody right. really expects anything right. out of you. So the pressure right. on you is pretty low at that point. By the time you gain success in something, it's actually much harder because no one likes to let you off the hook because they expect great 
things from you at that point, and then also you expect great things. Absolutely, which might even and, be and worse. I think you know when you're an underdog, you're kind of like people are rooting for you, right? And not just rooting, but they're helping you. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. They're supporting kind of fun. you. Um, but by the time like you're not an underdog, some sometimes you see the opposite dynamic where it's like, oh, we'll we'll bring him down a peg. Uh, you know. You know, uh, yeah. you see that with like sports too all the time, and you see it with all kinds of like uh, a- athletes, actors, uh, m- musicians. Uh, people love like a, 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 a underdog story, but they also love like a, a shooting star burning. Yeah, tear down as well. Tear down. Um, so yeah. I'm not saying that that's where I'm I'm at, but it's definitely something that um, <laughs> you know it's in the back of your head. So uh, I, I think that um, it, it's really. Um, some things are definitely easier. So fundraising, it's definitely easier, right? Because I have networks of people that made money from my previous startups. So like they, there's a level of trust and support that I, would, I didn't have as a 22, 23, 25 year old. So that, that's easier. So um, um, hiring is easier because just to have bigger pools of people to tap into. But um, after all those things are, are, are said and done for, like you still need to have good ideas and you need to make those ideas into a reality. So, you know, uh, is putting vitamins and uh, minerals in existing products like toothpaste a good idea? Well, I think it is, uh, but, you know, the the market will tell us in the end, you know, there's some very positive signs, but, you know, it'll take some time for us to see how big of an idea. Could this be what gummies were? To uh, you know, to vitamins ten years ago, like gummies were pretty much non-existent as a concept ten, fifteen years ago. But now they've grown into a big, big portion of of the of the vitamin and supplement world. Um, so uh, I believe it can be. I think we can change how supplements are done, but the market will tell us. So in the end, like a lot of is a lot of things are in your control, but a lot of things aren't. And I think that realization is both profoundly frightening and also very liberating at the same time. Yeah, I guess it's a great idea to just focus on the liberating aspect. Yes, of it. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I try. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I think that's the kind of both, that's kind of the gift of an entrepreneur is like you can be an optimist um, in, a, in a way that is, is productive. Totally. Well, I love the the concept behind the brand and the product and how differentiated it is. And Thank also you. the uh, background on like how varied your um, experience and yeah. Yeah. expertise well, is within the entrepreneurial world as a whole, like outside of specific industries was fascinating too. Yeah, there's definitely a through line of of new ideas, new concepts. I think in the end, it's like connecting the dots. Like I said, I think it's like connecting ideas that may be weird or far-fetched into something that's like, oh, this was inevitable. Well, no, crowdfunding wasn't inevitable 10, 12 years ago. Digital art as a, as a category wasn't inevitable six, seven years ago, but now it seems so. And, and I think, you know, supplements and vitamins being delivered through existing habits um, like it's not, it doesn't feel inevitable now, but to me it does. And so that's, that's my job yeah. is to make it like feel. I mean, as a general trend, well, so. it seems yeah. inevitable in a way, uh, just in the fact that like people want simple yes. lives, uh, or simple habits Less is more. do easily. Yeah. 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 Um, now, now that maybe travel is not as big of a part of your life, how do you feel like you gain trend insight? Is that something that you feel like you've done so often that now it might not need to come from like as drastically of a different um, I think it's like place. a few things. I mean, obviously, the internet makes things kind of both... It's like drinking from a fire yeah. hose. <laughs> I no, guess no, no, that might good. be a bad um, question. It, the internet is like drinking from a fire hose. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm drowning in 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 stuff. There's so many <laughs> good podcasts and so many, um, you know, even like niche uh, publications, but that have really good 
writers and curators and creators. So I, I try to stay on top of that, but that's tough. I think a lot of also life has to be around like the people you surround yourself with. Um, so I try, to, I try to surround myself with different types of people in every sense, in terms of profession, in terms of age, in terms of, um, you know, uh, financial, uh, um, you know, uh, wherewithal, uh, everything. Because often people, I think, where people lose that sense of insight is, is in cocoons of, of like-minded people. So trying to have non-like-minded people around me in political worlds too, like in every way, I think is really, really important for, for sparking those uh, moments of insight and those moments of, of, of connection and, and idea. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, yeah, I would love absolutely. to stay in touch also and kind of watch from the, the sidelines. As I would love that. And, brain and hopefully grows. we can uh, do like an update and, you know, in a, in a year or two and, and go yeah. from there. Yeah, that would be awesome. Right, let's see.